welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast, where we explore how to center our lives and our leadership in the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. In the midst of the disruptive cultural shockwaves of the 21st century. Join us as we learn to take the love of God seriously as the force that holds all of us and everything together. This podcast is brought to you by Gravity Leadership Academy, our 12-month online training intensive for Christian leaders who want to root their lives and leadership in God's love and bring lasting transformation to their culture. In Gravity Leadership Academy, you'll learn the real-life practicalities of how to notice God's presence and activity in and around you so you can more fully participate in God's life and mission and open up space for those around you to do so too. We've worked really hard to make this training in missional leadership practical and doable. To find out more about Gravity Leadership Academy, visit gravityleadership.com slash academy. Hello, 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 dear listeners. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. I'm Ben Sternke. I'm listening to yes. you. Yeah. Thank you for you, welcoming You me. are Matt... And Christy are here with me, and Matt and Christy are two of our listeners, although you guys are listening ahead of everybody else. I'm earnestly listening to what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Keep going. And, yep, putting your, your, you're far too close to your own microphone there as well. All right. So. Just getting used to this. But anyway, yeah, yeah, well, you know, we'll get there. We're a couple hundred episodes in, (laughs) eventually. Eventually, you'll figure this out. Yeah. You're a quick learner. Yeah, you're a quick learner. I am committed to learning through failure. Yay. Yep. Uh, yes. Well, uh, folks, it is. We're recording this right at the end of January. Can you guys believe it's the end of January? No. This episode's going to release on February first. Jeez. Yeah, this is it. Love Just month. Flying through. Love month, huh? Is it because I mean, of Valentine's Day? Listen, if y'all haven't thought about what to get your wives for Valentine's oh. Day, I'm telling you right now, you got like two weeks, right? Mm-hmm. Mm. So. Think is Valentine's it. Day is that a big deal in in your house, Christy? Oh well, we do a pink meal, a pink and red meal. That's how we celebrate. <laughs> oh, so like everything is pink or red. We have like you like know the food spaghetti the and meatballs, okay, and Jello yeah. and pink smoothies. Y'all, in order that's, to understand Christy, that's a very Christy Penley thing to do. <laughs> in order to understand Christy, you have to realize that she is a living, breathing cruise <laughs> social director. <laughs> she runs her family. Uh, everything's an event. It's an event. Everything's an event. There's <laughs> themes. There's there's competitions. There's <laughs> a, a rewards. There's pink meals. Oh my gosh! It's matching clothes. Matching clothes. <laughs> it, there's a word of the day. It, like yeah. you know, come on. It's amazing, Christy. It's awesome. It's so yeah. great. I think yeah. about I think about like if somebody made me do that I would be like sweating bullets and I'd be so bad at it. <laughs> me too. The thing I, is, you roll out of bed and before you've had your first yeah. cup of coffee, you've created an obstacle course for your kids to get down to breakfast, and the first one down gets to have a donut or something. And it's like, it's, a, it's amazing. Like super mom can't help it. Yeah, it it uh, th- yeah that was my thought exactly. It was just like. That would take me a week. It would take me a week, and I would, and I, and I would be bad at it. It would be like people would be like, "This, this party's stupid." Yeah, no fun, Ben. Uh, and hey, I would have spent forty hours on it. So, on the positive side, any listener or you and oh. you, Ben or mm-hmm. Matt, now you have an idea for Valentine's Day. You could be like, "Hey guys, guess what? Mm-hmm. We're gonna do a pink and red meal." Pink, pink and red, and meal. red meal. Yeah. 
All right. Yeah. Let me write okay. this down. Yeah, pink and red. <laughs> pink. Those are kind of the Valentine's Day colors. Uh, could you share nice. your menu with us, Christy? There you go. Give a menu you set up. Spaghetti and meatballs. I know a spaghetti I'm, and meatballs. Do you I'm dye the noodles? Like, no, no. Okay. It's not like. Um, yeah. You're not hard. Yeah, it's just like the okay. red sauce, right? Yeah, red sauce. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I got it. And uh, I'm doing Jello with fruit in it, which is like a special thing Ooh, we don't have that yeah. often. Oh. Um, and pink smoothies, like fruit smoothies, but put it like you know. So this is literally strawberries. You're already planning this. Or yeah, this is but stuff like, you've done but in the like past. the way okay. I plan something right. is not the way. Like I just. I don't know. I wake up at like, you know, 1 a.m. and I'm like, oh, here's a great idea. Yep. And then I roll back over and go to sleep. <laughs> it's just the way my brain Yes, works. it's incredible. <laughs> I love it. That's, that is incredible. I man. absolutely love it. I, I wake up at 1 in the morning and I'm like, oh, that was such a weird dream. <laughs> and then I go back to sleep. And then in the morning I'm like, what was that? And I don't remember. But I know it was weird. Yeah. And I feel weird. That's what happens to me in the middle of the night. Nothing, <laughs> weird things. Nothing as cool as you. Yeah. Christy gets amazing Nothing things cool and Ben just gets weird things. <laughs> Lame. Well, do we have any announcements today? Hmm. Um, no. Well, actually, um, I guess one announcement. This is an upcoming event. Um, we're going to be doing an Enneagram workshop. Oh, yeah. Um, we're starting to do workshops again, guys. Getting uh, back out there. It's been fun. Matt and in I, person. Yeah, in person. Matt and I went out to Chesterton, Indiana mm -hmm. uh, last weekend. And um, this weekend, I'm going down to Lexington with a church that we work with down there. And then uh, in March, there is in um, Missouri, Fredericktown, Missouri, um, we're going to be hosting an Enneagram workshop uh, with a church that we work with down there. Um, so anyway, uh, the I don't even think the... Anyway, if you subscribe to our email list, that's our first blurb. I'll do that. Um, you can get more information about it. If you're in the area, you are welcome uh, to come to join us. That's Saturday... March 19th. Yeah. Just looking at my calendar here. So yeah, Saturday, March 19th, you're welcome to join us. Um, and the way to find out about that stuff is to join our free email list. Did you say free? Online. It's free, Matt. I'm I'm not even joking. You can, we don't charge you any money for this. Uh, okay. But um, if you go to gravityleadership.com slash join, you can join our community. We send you an email. Basically, it means we send you an email once a week. Um, it's got curated links uh, to articles that we found helpful mm -hmm. or interesting, uh, sometimes just funny, um, that are yeah, about faith and culture and uh, how to be a Christian today. It's not easy, guys. Yeah. It's not nope. easy. Yeah. Um, and then we'll also let you know about uh, events that you can participate in uh, and our newest content uh, comes straight to your inbox if you sign up there. Um, the second thing to blurb before we get into our interview is that um, you can send us, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm, I'm into this guys. You can send us a question or a comment uh, via voicemail. Mm -hmm. um, if you go to gravityleadership.com slash message, you can leave us uh, up to 90 second voicemail and you are welcome to just leave us a comment. You're welcome to leave us a question. Or if you want, you can do a little, Hey, this is Ben from Indianapolis, and you're listening to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Oh. And uh, we'll put that on the podcast if you leave us one of those. So anyway, just head to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start recording button. Yep. Use it. It's going to be fun. Don't abuse it. Use it. Don't, yeah, please don't abuse it. <laughs> don't know what that means. Uh, it takes your email address, so we'll know who you are <laughs> if you abuse it. So... Um, and then finally, friends, the Gravity Commons is something that you've probably heard us uh, talk about. This is our paid membership platform. Um, you can join us for podcast recordings and Q&A 
with our guests, uh, including a bunch of other stuff that's uh, really cool and fun. If you go to gravityleadership.com slash commons, you can get all the info and register, sign up, and join us. Fun fact, today's episode with David Gushy is the first time that we recorded a Gravity Commons Live podcast, What? which means that this podcast was recorded with a live studio audience, so to speak. Um, we recorded it uh, over Zoom. There was, yeah. um, I don't know, you guys remember? There's like 20 people in yeah. the room. I do. Yeah. Or so. Um, I was and that's the kind of thing. You, yeah, I was too. I wasn't sure how it was going to go. <laughs> first time. Was everybody going to behave themselves? Yeah. <laughs> so, and they did. They did. They did. They did great. Um, if you want access to this anxiety, no, uh, <laughs> if... <laughs> No, if you wanna if you wanna join us for these, we've got a number of these conversations coming up um, this month. We're talking with Sheila Gregoire and Sarah McDougall about purity culture, oh yeah, and um, the effect that it has on Christian marriage and sex. Uh, and then the week after that, I think we're talking with Melissa Flora Bixler about her book How to Have an Enemy. Um, if you want access, these mm-hmm. these conversations will eventually be on the podcast. But uh, if you want access to the live recording of them and Afterwards, after we hit stop on the recording, we do Q&A with our guests. Yep. If you'd like to yeah. do that, you can join us in the comments. Yep. But this, yeah, this was our first, our first interview uh, with our whole community. It was fun. First go around. First go around. Yeah. So, All right. So yeah, this is it. Uh, David Gushy uh, talking about uh, his latest book. Should we get into it? Let's do it. Let's do it. David Gushy, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Matt. It is good to be with you and your community today. Yes. David is the Distinguished Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University, Chair of Christian Social Ethics. Uh, oh, I can't even pronounce that, David. How do you pronounce that? Well, it's Ver- Dutch. It, uh, <laughs> um, Ver- it's uh, <laughs> Here's my rendering, Vry Universitite. Okay, but I know that's not very good. So anyway. All right. Well, that's that's way better than what I would have said. Vrij Universiteit Amsterdam and yeah. senior and senior research fellow at International Baptist Theological Study Center. David has uh, has been the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of over 25 books. I won't list them all here, but we are talking about David, I think your latest book today, which is on uh, Christian ethics. Yeah, um, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yes, introducing Christian ethics, uh, David. You are an ethicist, and uh, this has been maybe your life work. So before we jump into this book and talk about some of the exciting things that I, I want to ask you about, is there anything else we need to know about David Gushy? Uh, I'm a, a converted Christian at the age of sixteen. Um, Baptist pastor by calling and plenty of years as a pastor. Um, I teach college and seminary students. Um, this international platform is new and exciting and um, mainly at supervising PhD students. Um, and I am a family person, been married 37 years to Jeannie and we have three grown kids. Um, so that's probably enough to 
get people oriented. That's good. Just people knowing that you've been married for 37 years and you have three kids means that you know you've had to apply some sort of ethical rubrics for many years now. This I is... would I would say so. It doesn't <laughs> happen accidentally, right? You know? Right. Great. Well, David, uh, maybe to start us off with, um, I have three or four books on Christian ethics on my shelf, and I know there's several, maybe dozens or even a hundred more. What was it about this book and the contribution you wanted to bring that made this work necessary or unique in this present moment for you? Yeah. Um, Christian ethics is my life calling. Uh, I discovered it when I was in seminary and, uh, I understand Christian ethics to be fundamentally about the academic discipline that helps Christians follow Jesus better in a more informed and trained way uh, in the moral dimension of life. And so mm. Mm. Uh, it's about our character, uh, the rules and principles by which we seek to live, the goals that we pursue, um, how, we, how we understand the story of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible to shape our lives today. Um, and, and then how we, how we seek to think about and live in relation to all kinds of complicated challenges like, um, you know, sexuality, family, uh, economics, uh, abortion, end of life, uh, war, criminal justice, basically all of that. So, um, I have, I began my career as a Christian ethicist a while back. I have my name as co-author of one of the major um, evangelical ethics textbooks. It's called Kingdom Ethics. Yes. But, but this is my, um, my culminating effort to offer an overview of the field. Mm. Um, and actually, here it is. Here's the, uh, look at that. They even put my, my, my <laughs> face on the cover. I have become Joel Osteen. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> so... Uh, I told them you cannot put me on the cover, but they did anyway. Uh, so anyway, it's it's my um, it's my synthesis of the field as I understand it, and I'm pretty excited about it. Uh, I deal with just about everything that I think is important in the field, and have some new elements in it that have not appeared in my writing before. Yes, yeah, and I want to get into maybe some of the specific ethical questions that you wrestle with towards the end of the book that I think are part of the unique contribution you're bringing, but. I wonder if you, the, for the word ethic, sometimes we use it interchangeably with words like morality or holiness or righteousness. So how are you, what's distinctly Christian about a Christian ethic? And how is that different than just being good? Um, there is a technical distinction between ethics and morality that goes back uh, to the ancient Greeks um, that I try to hold on to. It doesn't always hold, but I, I say that there's a moral dimension of life that all human beings face. It's whenever we ask what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, how should we live? Um, and how do we know what the answers to those things are, right? And, and I like to say that whenever you hear people arguing at the top of their voice about what somebody should have done, should have done or shouldn't have done, they're probably doing ethics in some way, right? <laughs> um, but, but technically, ethics is the systematic reflection on the moral dimension of life. So it's, it's when you step back from the arguments and the, the disputes uh, 
and and um, the chaos of what's out there, and you attempt to analyze all that and make proposals for how people should live, you're doing ethics. Um, and that's generally the work of, well, at one level, it's the work of specialists, academics, but um, but there are others who are, I mean, in a sense, anybody who's offering moral leadership in communities is doing something like that. Um, Christian ethics is ethics that is informed by um, or centered, hopefully, centered on the, the example, teaching, and life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and by the tradition of Christian moral teaching that has evolved over 2,000 years. So it's not Christian ethics if Jesus is not central to it. Um, and I think Christian ethics is also best understood as a long tradition of lifestyle and reflection and argument and preaching and teaching about that fundamental question, how should we live if we are followers of Jesus? Yeah. I, I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but I do I, like to... St- I've been in trouble so many times, Matt. I, I mean... Okay, I'm David. used to it. Let's do it. Go then. for it. What you got? Let's man? stir the pot. Well, uh-huh. so um, you have a whole chapter on Howard Thurman, yeah, and sort of and doing ethics from below or or reading Jesus from below, and I, I guess that's the first uh, evangelical or Christian ethic book that you know retrieves sort of the wealth of theological reflection and uh, ethical brilliance of of the Black Church or the Black radical tradition. I, I wonder then maybe uh, to make it a little more scandalous, what do you feel like we've been missing from the white Western church when it comes to thinking about Christian ethics? And how is this book maybe uh, a reformation or a retrieval to correct good, that? Good question. Good question. Oh, thanks, Christy. <laughs> uh, Christy's right. Good question, Matt. Um, the... Uh, one innovation in this new book is I give Howard Thurman a chapter early in the book. I was, I found reading his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. He had others that were really important too, but this book um, from the 1940s was one of the first books by a black Christian author to make its way into um, broad use in seminaries and and colleges uh, outside of the black community and, and, you know, that white dominated academic and Christian space. And Thurman was writing out of the African-American experience. He was also writing out of travels around the world, uh, one notable visit to Asia where he visited uh, India and um, what we now call Sri Lanka. And it was an, it was an early um, presentation of this idea that that the the Jesus, that there are different versions of Jesus that are out there. And the Jesus that has been in circulation in European, American, and colonial Christianity has been very distant from the Jesus who we actually meet in the Gospels. Um, That the Jesus we meet in the Gospels is an itinerant, carpenter living day to day on um you know the on the margins of society always at risk no political power whatsoever marginal in the jewish context marginal in the roman empire able to be thrown up on a cross at any time and he was 
um, a prophetic voice from the margins. He was one of the, what Thurman calls the disinherited of the earth. And so basically if we, what he tries to do in the book is to understand what was known at that time about the first century political context of Jesus's life. And, and to say that Jesus, there are insights to be gained from the teachings of Jesus that are really most readily accessible from people who are also dispossessed and disinherited. In other words, you might say African-Americans in the Jim Crow South might understand some things about Jesus that the white people there might miss. Uh, people in the, colonial, in the colonized world, the darker skinned peoples of, of the world, he would have said, understand some things about Jesus that the colonizers don't. Because we have read Jesus through the lens of our power and privilege, we white people, and, and we've systematically missed elements of who he was and what his message means um, because uh, we have not really been able to understand what his social context was and who he was speaking to. Um, so there are other ethics textbooks uh, that attempt to treat Jesus from below, but they're not generally written by, by white men. You know, they're generally written by, you know, feminists and uh, black scholars and uh, Latino, Latina scholars and Asian, Asian American, and so on. So um, maybe that's something different. I, I hope that I have, I've learned some things by, from decades of really listening to my colleagues outside of my little social box uh, to, to read Jesus in a different way. Yeah, I think that shapes then, um, I don't want to move to the, to the ethical uh, arenas that you, that you double click on at the end too quickly, but I do think that shapes what you decide to focus on. Um, we had uh, a friend of ours, Isama Kali, who wrote a book last year called Reading While Black. Uh, and while he was on this podcast, he mentioned that Christian ethics Christian ethics books, and I think he talks about it in his book, they don't focus on police. And we need, we need some sort of Christian ethic of policing. Um, and I think Esau was saying, like, if, you, if you're reading scripture while black, this is obvious to you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Whereas it's maybe not obvious to a white Western person who's thinking, what are the ethical, Christian ethical conundrums that I need to help people with? Um, and I, it was, I'm really encouraged that you have an entire chapter on the criminal justice system and policing. Uh, and I'm wondering, like, was, is that a gift that the Black church gave you? Or how else, how did you come to see that as an important thing to, to navigate in this book? Um. It, I would say it definitely is a gift that the Black Church gave me. Um, you know, what we understand to be the pressing moral issues of our time are so affected by the problems that are most acutely important in our everyday lives. And um, I live in Atlanta, and I work in Macon in Atlanta, and um, Georgia has been ground zero for a number of... Um, significant issues of, uh, you know, well, the Ahmaud Arbery case was here, for example, um, long history of, of policing problems and mistreatment of African-Americans. And so it's interesting, generally when, when conservative white 
guys write ethics, if they want to deal with issues of crime, they focus on the role of the state, the Romans 13 passage about submitting to government authority, um, uh, the reason why everybody should submit to governing authority, just kind of a straight out reading of Romans 13 without any critical engagement. Um, and the fact that Paul says there, the government and the authorities exist for your good, people who whose lives have been experienced in a comfortable relationship to the state say that's right amen you know let's just do that but when the state has engaged your body and your family's bodies and your friends bodies in cruel and unjust ways romans 13 doesn't have the same resonance it has to be argued with it isn't just submitted to in that way mm -hmm. um you know so yes you know over 50 percent of our students here at mercer school of theology are african-american um, uh, it is impossible to teach ethics here without, without engaging from below, from the perspective of those who have been historically mistreated in, in the white dominated South. And so, yeah, um, I hope that this book succeeds in, in breaking out of some of the blinders that most white authored textbooks have in the area of ethics. Hmm. I'm glad you like that. I'm glad you noticed it. You're the first commentator so far to pick up on that. I think it's important. It jumped right off the page. That's great to me. I'm learning to have my ethical compass sort of uh, re-magnetized uh, as, I, as I hang out with other sort of uh, people groups and listen to other how other people experience the world differently than me. Um, and I'm, I, want, I want a Christian ethic that isn't sort of fact, like factionalistic or um, yeah. siloed, but I want a Christian ethic that actually uh, has is, can be good news for the world, not just good news for people uh, like me. Yeah. You know, one of the oldest critiques uh, in the theological academy of white dominated scholarship is this one. The accusation is you guys act as if you're, um, well, you guys act as if, as if you don't have a social location, you have a universal perspective. Yes. Um, and, and so when we raise different kinds of questions, you accuse us of being like parochial or, or too socially located because you're ignoring your own social location, right? So the best way to correct for the blind spots of everybody's social location is to have a, a community of readers and thinkers with as much rich diversity as possible. Hmm. Um, that way uh, we can correct for one another's blind spots. I really believe in thinking and reading and discerning in community. And my, my ethics here at, at this stage of my life is, has evolved a lot because of uh, the communities that I've had the privilege of being a part of over these years. If you're loving this podcast, we invite you to go deeper and partner with us in our work by joining the Gravity Commons, our online community of practice for connecting and learning together. As a member of the Gravity Commons, you get access to live podcast recordings with upcoming guests, as well as other opportunities to connect and learn together with us in real time. Including learning labs, member meetups, discussion boards, online courses, and our practitioner podcast. Go to gravityleadership.com slash commons to find out more. See you in the comments. I want to let Ben and Christy get into, but I'm going to ask one more question and 
and then give them some space here. So this diversity, this plurality, this multivalent sort of uh, go, like I, I need multiple inputs. But your book also is very clear that there's a moral core to a Christian ethic. Mm. So so that they, so that you have this this contrasting movement, David, of taking in inputs from a diverse group of um, of of places. But they're all centered on what you call, I think you call it the moral core, and you and you list uh, five things: truthfulness, sacredness, justice, love, and forgiveness. Uh, you we obviously don't have time for you to teach through all of those, but could you maybe speak to those as the moral core and and why those that was why that was persuasive to you that that should be the place where we root our ethic? Um the um the idea that there are some motifs or core um commitments core principles core practices in ethics is an older one i think it goes back as far as uh, jesus being asked uh basically what is the greatest commandment and he, and he says love god with everything love your neighbor as yourself um there's so many moral teachings and obligations we kind of need help knowing what the main compass points are, you know? Um, and in some earlier work, I had, I mean, in ethics, we always identify love and justice as at the heart of, of ethics, right? I've expanded that some in this book. Um, sacredness essentially is to speak of the God-given, the immeasurable God-given value of all creatures with the elevated status of human beings made in the image of God. Um, Justice, I, I claim, is clearly the central norm, moral norm of the Hebrew Bible, with plenty of teaching of Jesus about it that we've mainly missed. Love, we know about. Forgiveness is so central in the teaching of Jesus, I felt like it needed to be in there. And then truthfulness, I've heightened the emphasis on truthfulness in this book because I think we have a truth crisis in our society and around the world right now. And it's truthfulness is a way of life. It's a character quality, not just a rule not to tell, the, not to tell lies, right? So, so kind of what I'm, what I'm saying is whatever you do in any specific issue, uh, do a kind of a, a GPS locating around does your value or practice or principle or teaching fit with human and creational sacredness, truthfulness, justice, love, and forgiveness. There are some other themes that make their way through the book. Covenant is an important theme in the book. Um, but those are the five that I lifted up this time as, uh, you know, I'd say the, the central motifs. I think people kind of, sometimes they've been called middle axioms in the past. I think people need a few kind of, um, when in doubt, what am I trying to remember? Five things. You can put it on an index card, right? <laughs> um, and that is helpful because I think the complexity is intense. We need some ways of simplifying the story, you know? Yeah, that's helpful. Um, in one of the chapters, you talk about the radical economic ethics of Jesus, and yeah. this is—I mean, this is real for um, well, for Matt and I right now. We're um, in the new year. Sometime we're going to be um, wanting to take our church. We co-pastor a church together, um, and we're wanting to take our church through a, a study of Mammon. You know, in the New Testament, ah. Jesus, you know, uh, talks about it uh, as a rival god. And um, all that kind of thing. So anyway, I was particularly interested um, 
in um, sort of the headlines that you have in this section on the economic ethics of Jesus, and obviously interested um, because of those uh, reasons in our church. Um, but um, you have uh, the middle part there is the obscure parable of the shrewd manager. Um, and that, I wonder if you could comment a little bit on the shrewd manager, because that, that parable um, is, uh, <laughs> it's oftentimes in the lectionary. I think it oftentimes falls late in the summer. And um, there's a joke uh, that you know, very few people will hear it. Yeah, yeah. Very well, very few people hear it. And pastors and priests have a tendency to go on vacation uh, when it's time <laughs> for it to be preached because people are like, what the world is going on in this parable? Um, so, anyway, I wonder if you could comment um, just number one on the, the economic ethics of Jesus and, you know, what maybe there's some overall themes that you see there in the New Testament, but also specifically on that parable. Like, what, what in the world is happening with this parable? Uh, I'm glad you picked that out, too. Um, this was an experiment for me in, you know, economic ethics. There, are, I'm reading an economic ethics book right now that's like 500 pages long. You know, I mean, economic ethics is its own field, right? Mm -hmm. So if you, if you have 4,000 words, I aimed for 4,000 words per chapter. What are, we, what are you going to do? And I've tried various um, approaches in the past, but, but I was so taken by this parable and I eventually saw that, let's try an ex a methodological experiment this time. Let's do essentially an exposition of this text uh, as a way of opening out major themes in economic ethics. Hmm. Um, I think that the parable of the shrewd manager is about the, is about the systemic injustice and moral corner cutting that exists in every economic system that we've ever seen. Hmm. Um, and that when I mean, the central figure, it begins as a, a rich man who has everything, runs vast estates. He has a manager who, who is doing some corner cutting um, on his own behalf. Hmm. And when this manager is found out, instead of... Um, instead of being dismissed from his position, he's, he's praised for acting shrewdly. It's like, good job, dude. It's like, um, you, you've learned from the master. If you're, gonna, if you're gonna work for this company, you need to be just as shrewd and corner cutting as I am. Yeah, yeah. I think, and I do a little bit of like, like layers of editing here. I think that the original parable ends with his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Okay. But then that's in 16.8. And then you get like Luke adding four different comments on what, the, on what that parable means. Yeah. I think that Luke himself did not exactly know what to make of that, of that parable. <laughs> good. So, you know, so the first layer is, um, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth. And it's like, what? Nobody knows what that means. So then you go to the next one, which is faithful and little, faithful and much, dishonest and a little, dishonest and much. Okay, okay, fine. Let me go to the next one, which is no slave can serve two masters. Then you go to the next one where the Pharisees ridicule this because they're lovers of money. And then it ends with God knows your hearts for what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. Um, and I, I essentially conclude that um, 
Jesus looks at the power structure of the economic world at this time from below. And what he sees is mammon is an idol. People will sacrifice everything to this idol, including ethics. Um, from below, the one thing you know is that the rich take care of themselves and each other, and they cut corners, but never on your behalf. Mm. And, and that the kingdom, and Jesus is saying something like, the kingdom of God looks in large part like the shattering of this mammonistic world. Mm. And the community of people around Jesus are going to be people who fully recognize mammon for what it is and are seeking to get loose of that as an idol. Mm. Um, and so I'm glad you're doing a series coming up on mammon and, and how Christians orient themselves economically, because yeah. it is one of the ways in which our society trains us to think just like every society has, you know, the rich are the, at the top of the hierarchy, whatever they have to do to succeed is probably fine. The poor are at the bottom for reasons that are their own fault. Everybody should, everybody should try to climb up that ladder. Mm-hmm. And, and the preacher doesn't ever challenge that because whoever has the most money, you know, calls the shots in the church and, and gives the most and mm-hmm. gets, you know, they're the, the chair of the deacons and all of that. Right. You know, mm-hmm. so, so I think this, this parable is a snapshot of a radical vision of the injustice and immorality of economic life as it is always experienced by those who are on the bottom of the power structure. Mm. Well, that's, that'll be, that'll be really helpful. I'm going to go back through and listen to this before we teach our class. That'll be really No more vacations for you, Ben, at the end of the summer. (laughs) I'm going to have to preach the, well, maybe you should, Matt, preach this parable. Um, Yeah, no, that's really, uh, that's really helpful. Um, I mean, it's not everything to be said about an economic ethic, but it's kind of a place to start. Yes, yes. That's what I would say. Yeah, Yeah, and I appreciate you linking that too to this, you know, this other theme that Matt mentioned of seeing things from below, you know, trying to understand this not as a, you know, a parable about how to, you know, how, you know, how, how to get rich or, you know, something like that, but seeing it from the perspective of uh, those who, yeah, who who don't have enough, who've been marginalized, who've been oppressed, who've been cast aside. Yeah. Yeah. It's helpful. Thanks. Yeah. That, that reading reminds me of uh, some of the readings Obrey Hendricks and the politics of Jesus gives yeah, yeah. in the Gospels. Obrey's a friend of mine. And, um, you know, part of, part of what that shows is there are ways of reading scripture that are only open to us if we're willing to, to critically interrogate standard commentaries and standard ways of reading. You know, in other words, the commentaries we may have on our shelf that we got from, you know, Evangelical Seminary X somewhere, they may not have a reading like that, you know? Even to say that what I think Luke is doing is he's actually, he's taking little snippets of sayings of Jesus about money and appending them one after the other here to kind of try to make sense of this parable is a, it's more of a redaction kind of critical reading of how, of how this text was constructed, right? And part of being in a post-evangelical space for me now is I'm able, I feel willing and ready to be a little more experimental with text in that way, instead of as rigid as we were trained to be about, no, you can't, you can't really engage the text in that way. Yeah. Yeah. Luke is just uh, reporting word for word exactly how Jesus said this. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to, I want to name maybe the topics that you get into here, David, and then ask you some questions, some meta questions about the topics. And then uh, 
this is a, a live uh, podcast we're doing. And so after after we're, we wrap up, we'll do some live Q&A about specific things. But the topics that you cover at the end of this book where you take you know, this moral core and you take this uh, looking at ethics, Christian ethics from below, you focus on uh, some of these are my shorthand. These aren't what you call me. You focus on creation and creation care, patriarchy, uh, what you call white Christian supremacism, which maybe there might be questions about that. Uh, we mentioned economics, abortion, sexual ethics, marriage, uh, church and state, police and criminal justice, like we've mentioned, end of life issues and ministerial ethics. Uh, which of those, David, did you feel like you had the most work to do in to write this book? Or wh- which one of those did you make the most discoveries and have to do the most growing and learning in? Um, and there's one other one, too. Uh, Peace and War is in there. Um, oh, I missed that one. Yeah. Um, yep. Thank you. The ones I had done the most work on in the past were um, uh, sex, marriage, and peace and war, probably. Um, so the ministerial ethics, I had not written at length about ministerial ethics in a long time. So that, that was, that was good. I was, you know, I was glad I put that up there. Um, I would say the chapter on abortion integrates feminist perspectives at a level of, um, intentionality and depth that I've never done before. So I had a lot of work to do there. And that may be also related to the chapter on patriarchy. If you're following at all the online world about all this discussions about gender, especially in evangelical and post-evangelicalism, Beth Barr, Kristen Dumay, all of that. Um, this was written uh, actually before I had a chance to read either of those books, um, but mm. it totally fits. Um, so, you know, I think that, I think that challenging patriarchy and naming it as not a value of Jesus, but instead a value of culture and attempting to create communities in which patriarchy is overcome is a bigger theme in this book than in any of my previous writing. Hmm. And that if we're going to talk about abortion, it can't just be the old argument about the moral status of the fetus. Um, uh, it also is going to have to deal with the feminist um, concern for um, multiplying women's moral agency and not allowing women's choices to be the subject of um, political manipulation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would say there's more that those chapters required um, a much needed deepening of my engagement with feminist ethics, feminist and womanist ethics. And I'd be happy to comment on those, but every, every bit of it has new, has some new stuff in it. The, you know, but, but I say that's my answer, my, probably my best answer to your question. Yeah. You know, David, I really appreciated what you entitled your chapter. Cause it wasn't just like, um, stop abortion. <laughs> it was preventing unwanted pregnancy and abortion, which I believe that was intentionally, it was, you know, labeled that way because it gives a, a, a holistic picture, a, a more full picture of what does it mean to really care for women and children. And um, I just appreciate that. So thank you for that. Thank you, Christy. Uh, that chapter, 
I want, I want, hopefully there'll be a lot of attention to that chapter because um, this issue needs to be treated holistically, not, you know, a bunch of male theologian ethicists debating the moral status of the fetus at six weeks versus 12 weeks versus 18 weeks. It's, it's, uh, I think we have a crisis in um, sexual and marital and male-female relationships in our, in our society and in our world, a big part of that crisis is the chronic problem of patriarchy. And abortion, when people are thinking about getting an abortion, a lot has already gone wrong. And so what you have to ask is, how do you work your way back to what, what has gone wrong and why it has gone wrong? And how do we make a response that deals with all the preconditions to the moment, the awful moments in which women feel like they have to consider abortion? Yeah. 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 Uh, so we need to probably wrap up the, this portion of the, of the podcast soon, David, but I do think, I do think abortion is an interesting ethical, um, phenomenon in that it often contains a lot of our interest, passion, rhetoric, focus, attention, money, energy as Christians but it also seems to be the thing that we tolerate the least amount of discussion about. Um, I have a friend that wrote an article and she was talking about the complexities and you have, you have a whole section on end of life complexities, right? Um, that, um, that if you've been a, if you've been a human, you've had to, you've either been in the situation or been proximal to somebody who's had to make a decision about, do we keep mom uh, on life support or do we do another round of chemo um, or those kinds of things? And my friend was saying, you know, it seems like Christians are able to net, to wade into morally complex waters around end of life issues. And it doesn't boil down to is mom a human being or not, right? That's not what it's boiled down to, but we lack that ability when we're talking about beginning of life issues our moral reasoning gets truncated or contained or siphoned, ciphered into it, like very narrow categories. I wonder maybe as we wrap up this live portion, like what is your take on, well, first of all, do you think, uh, I agree with my friend, so I'll, I'll, just, I'll own it as my perspective. Do you think that's, there's some truth in that? And if there is, how do you think we got there? Why are we in this morass? Um, I think that is true, at least in the U.S. setting, and if I had to guess why, I think it's because of how this has worked out legally. Um, in the case of abortion, the Supreme Court intervened in 1973 and imposed a national framework that was never accepted by large numbers of people. And so Roe v. Wade um, became a flashpoint Supreme Court decision that radicalized everybody, both those who were for it and those who were against it. And um, abortion became a yes or no, black or white, liberal or conservative issue, right? Mm. And people voted based on, you know, I mean, there's something like 25% of people every year, every four years have voted for president based entirely on this issue. Think about, think about all the things that a president has to deal with, and this is the issue, right? Presidents never deal with abortion except for Supreme Court appointments. What happened with uh, end of life is it looked like there was momentum towards a national law 
permitting assisted suicide. That went to the Supreme Court or mandating it as, as, a, as you know, something that every state had to allow. That would have violated the values of a lot of Americans. That went to the Supreme Court in 1995, I believe. And the Supreme Court said, no, thank you. And they sent it back to the states. So end of life never became politicized in the same way that abortion has. And it, it belongs, I mean, state legislators, I think something like seven states have assisted suicide. Most of them don't. But it's more of a local thing, a family thing, a hospital thing. And, and it's not been so politicized. People don't like march in the streets about it. And I think that has allowed for more nuanced human kinds of conversations and you know, about it. And I'm so glad because, you know, as you know, from that chapter, I, I went through this with my dad just this last year. And this is very, very personal and very painful. And there's going to be a legal framework and there's a lot of moral issues involved. But if it's politicized, it, it ruins the ability to even have a decent conversation in many cases. Yeah. Maybe uh, I wonder if I could just ask one last question before we go to Q and a, um, the, the, the last chapter in your book, David is why following Jesus is so hard. And so I want, I wonder if you could maybe just, uh, comment <laughs> on that. No. Um, but no, seriously, uh, maybe comment on that because I think it's one thing to have a moral vision, a moral framework, you know, um, a framework for Christian ethics, um, but sometimes that can end up feeling idealistic because we are confronted with our own failure so much to live into um, these things that we think are beautiful and good and want to live into. And also we're confronted with the failure of those that we live with and those that we walk with. Um, you know, our, our elected government official, like we're, we're confronted with the failure um, of this on multiple levels. So I wonder if you could just offer maybe a word of uh, encouragement for us um, for people who, want to follow Jesus, but find it difficult. It is a kind of a striking way to end a a book on ethics with a a chapter called why following Jesus is so hard. Um, My wife said, are you sure you want to do that? That looks, sounds, (laughs) you know, sounds like a downer, you know, Hey, uh, but I think it's realistic. I actually think that um, I was struck by Jesus talking about the, you know, the way is narrow and the road, is, is hard and few there are who find the way to life or whatever, you know, and Matthew seven butchered by whatever I just did to it. But <laughs> anyway, um, I think Jesus always is ahead of us. Um, and none of us have ever arrived in fully following Jesus successfully. Mm-hmm. As soon as we think we have arrived, that's when we're really in trouble. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But this chapter is it's about specific reasons why our um, our moral perception is damaged, or our ability to reason about things is distorted, or our loyalties, um, our life experiences, the, the the literal scars that we bear in our bodies and in our spirits uh, make it difficult for us to think clearly about this and that issue. Um, um, and I conclude with a very classic biblical theme that idolatry is an ever-present threat that we think we're worshiping and following Jesus, but it's mammon or a political party or a nation or pride or something else. Idolatry, idols are everywhere. I think it's Calvin, the, the human heart is an idol-making factory. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I never quote John Calvin, but Calvin makes it into that chapter. Um, <laughs> that was a good line. Uh, you know, so... 
Um, so the encouragement is just this. The Christian journey needs to be undertaken in community, a community of people where people are serious about trying to follow Jesus, and are always aware of the, the beauty of the project, the difficulty of the project, the need for forgiveness, the need for constant growth, the need for a community where we can dust ourselves off and dust one another off and say, hey, that, that was not the best move there, but there's another day, we repent, move on, we keep going, and we do it together. Hmm. The Christian life cannot be done in isolation. Otherwise, I think we would give up in discouragement. Yeah. So my vision of the church is this community of eager, earnest Christ followers helping one another pursue that hard path and knowing that the, the last word is always, um, is always grace. Mm. that's good yeah amen to that thank you really appreciate you spending some time with us thank you david uh the name of the book again is introducing christian ethics core convictions for christians today uh the book also has i think like teachings You you can scan qr codes and get teachings in each chapter too yeah david yeah um this is high tech uh for 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 me anyway uh it in one product, you can get um, uh, audio, uh, audio only or video lectures. Uh, uh, there's also ebooks and print. So, all for the low, low price at whatever it was we priced it for. You know. So, anyway, six hundred and forty-seven dollars. No, it's it's less than that. I think it's like eighty percent off. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. How can people find you online? Where do they where do they connect with you if they want to? Uh, best place is at my website, davidpgushy.com. Um, I'm trying to build an email list. So if you email me at info at davidpgushy.com, we can get you on there. That's a really, it's a redesigned website. It's got everything on there. A lot of, a lot of, you know, all my books and how to get them and a lot of sermons and lectures and stuff. So I'd send people there, davidpgushy.com. All right. Well, we're going to do some Q&A here with our audience, but uh, thanks for being a part of this podcast portion with us today. I appreciate the invitation very much. That was awesome. David Gushy. That's great. First time we met him, first time we chatted with him, and he was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's so smart. And sweet. Yeah. And sweet. Yeah. yeah, that was that was my impression of him as well. Like it, smart people aren't always uh sweet. Uh, you but know, he sweet is. in the most Christian uh sense of the term, right? It's it was like uh he was a very open hearted uh and genuine uh man. I really, yeah. I really enjoyed talking with him. Yes, and I love that he wants to, you know, talk again. And I love that he liked that there was. I mean, he's like he's like a true teacher, right? Mm-hmm. Like one of these professors that just loves teaching. He loves and he loves teaching not because he's in love with ideas, but he loves he loves teaching because he loves people. Yes, yeah, I love people too, but I'm nowhere near as sweet as smart as him. Yeah. Um. <laughs> yeah. So we didn't even get a chance to like get into some of these chapters. Because I love the way he's framing his ethical chapters. Listen to some titles. Ending Patriarchy Once and for All. Repenting White Christian Supremacism. The Radical Economic Ethics of Jesus. Preventing Unwanted Pregnancy and Abortion. Sexual Ethics After the Revolution. Where Church Meets State. Policing Crime and the Criminal Justice System. 
sacred violence and nonviolence, the ethics of peace and war. I think we could do a podcast on each of these chapters, guys. Right. We totally could. We We totally could. We did. did, uh, That's our schedule for the next year. (laughs) We did make some promises to have him back on the podcast. We will definitely. We did a little podcast for him. So we'll probably have to make make good on some of those uh, overtures. Hopefully he wasn't just being nice when he said he'd love to do that. Yeah. So. All right. Well, thanks for listening today. And um, yeah, it's awesome. We'll we'll have David Gushy on again. Yeah. Hey, quick no question words. before we go. Uh, did you guys oh, okay. did you guys hear why the hipster burnt his mouth? Uh, no. He drank coffee before <laughs> it was cool. See you next oh, time. Oh my Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you're finding it helpful, we'd love it if you tell your friends about it. Ratings and reviews online also help others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Joining our Gravity community is free. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Aaron Sternke edits and mixes the podcast, and you can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. We'd love to hear from you. To record a question or comment for us, go to gravityleadership.com slash message and click the start record button. You can also email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.